From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. One of my favorite things about writing is I always like to write until I feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like something doesn't feel done to me unless I say, oh, is that really what I think? <laughs> Ooh, what follows from that? So I write to discover what I think at the furthest edges of what's possible. And this book, I think, to the extent that it succeeds, it succeeds well in that because I didn't know that what came out of that was possible when I started writing it. <laughs> Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Maya Katrositz. She's taught at Denison University, Amherst College, and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She is this year serving as a research associate at the University of Waterloo Institute for Hellenistic Studies in Ontario, Canada. She's the author of Rethinking Early Christian Identity, Affect, Violence, and Belonging. And today we're talking about her recent book, The Lives of Objects, Material Culture, Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christianity. Dr. Maya Katrositz, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be talking with you. So it is uh, a joy to speak to you on many levels. One, because your work is excellent, but also because, you know, I, I read a lot of books. And by dint of both my scholarly role and my work here on Things Not Seen, I tend to read books with an eye to gutting them quickly and getting what I need out of them. Yours is one of those books that I'm going to go back and read again slowly because I'm, I learned so much from it, even from the way that I prepared for the interview. But it's a book that bears up rereading and bears up for looking back and doing more careful uh, attention and study. And, and I'm excited to talk to you about it because I want to introduce my list listeners to your thinking, because I think they're going to get a lot out of this conversation. And as a way of introducing you to my listeners, there's a portion of your book, The Lives of Objects, that I've asked you to read for us, if you'd be willing to do that right now. Of course, yeah. While I'm a historian of early Christianity, I've been writing to and in conversation with the adjacent and overlapping fields of classics, Jewish studies, literary studies, diaspora studies, anthropology, gender and sexuality studies, and others. Still, the impulse for this intervention feels as if it falls to the side of any of these frames of reference. Cultural studies, which theorizes diaspora, gender, sexuality, and more, has not taken a particular interest in the ancient world and certainly not anything associated with ancient Christianity. Classical studies, by virtue of its canon, centers on Greek and Latin literature, which almost always relegates other people or literatures to secondary or derivative status. Jewish studies has only rarely integrated New Testament literature as part of its overall capture of ancient Judean literature and culture. And given that so much of my work keeps pressing against specifically Christian belonging in antiquity as the overriding object of study or object of attachment, early Christian studies feels like a poor fit too. And yet, here we are. And that was our guest, Maya Katrositz, reading from her recent book, The Lives of Objects. One of the reasons why that passage really jumped out to me is it shows the mosaic quality, the, the multidisciplinary quality of what the work that you do and your colleagues do when they say that they are approaching the Bible or they're studying early Christian culture talking about these different fields from Judaic studies to gender studies and sexuality studies, I think that maybe an average listener might hear that list and say, wow, I heard all of these different kind of identities, but I didn't hear anything about the Bible. So one place to start is how do these different looks and approaches at identities and cultures and those kinds of ideologies almost, how do they help us understand a book that most people think that they can just take down and read plainly? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Part of it is is denaturalizing the Bible as an object. You know, it has a history of production. The Bible was made, it was collected over time of the biblical texts were. And I mean, part of this is sort of the ordinary work of contextualizing biblical texts, right? Putting them into their sort of lore original. (laughs) It'd be hard pressed to find me to to really accept the language of original, but it's earlier and perhaps more original context or the context in which these texts are um, generated and, and first read. So identity categories to me have limited use sometimes for understanding social lives. They are the predominant ways that we tend to address ancient literature, but ancient senses of belonging were sometimes quite complicated the way they are in, in the contemporary world. And in order to get at that complication, we're going to have to we're going, to, we're going to need analytics that go beyond or sort of underneath the kind of raw capture of identity categories and the simplicity of them. The Bible is a Christian object. So when we address the Bible as a Christian object, we can certainly do that. We can do that through histories of reception and questions of interpretation. But when we think about biblical texts in their in an ancient context, Christian identity is going to, to fail to produce something that looks like the grittiness and messiness of real social life in the ancient world. So there's a lot there to unpack, and I'm so glad for that answer. Before we get into unpacking it, I want to just take a moment and make sure that I introduce you again. So this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Maya Katrositz. She is spending this year as research associate at the University of Waterloo Institute for Hellenistic Studies in Ontario, Canada. We're talking about her excellent recent book, The Lives of Objects, Material Culture, Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christianity. Well, one of the things you just said was that you want to get at the complications of life in what it means to be a Christian in the ancient world. And as you show in your book, The Lives of Objects, that also overlaps into our ways of thinking about what it means to be a Christian in our contemporary world. I sometimes get into arguments on Twitter with people who want to radically simplify those questions. And when you ask about or direct them to complexity, They simply say, well, I just read the Bible, or they say, I just simply go to church and I listen to my bishop or what have you. You are thinking about this not only in an academic, scholarly sense, but also towards the end of your book, The Lives of Objects, you start to think about this in terms of teaching. And we'll come back to this question later in the conversation, but I'm intrigued right now. When you are thinking about getting at the complications, what are some of the mechanisms that you use to help to enliven those complications for people who maybe want to have the reactions like my conversation partners on Twitter? You're, you're making it too complex. Why don't you just simply read the Bible? Why don't you just simply do what your pastor tells you to do? Yeah, first of all, it feels important to me to, to notice when students or other folks want um, simplicity and, and authority to notice that actually that is itself a complex operation. That's already is a complex operation, whether it seems so or not. And there's choices being made in, in, in what you're taking to be authoritative. So that just denaturalizing what is taken to be authoritative, a book rather than a particular set of experiences. Often it seems that also authority rushes in for people, especially biblical authority. Let's, I don't want to generalize too much, but biblical authority rushes in in order to get us out of really living with how richly and painfully messy things are. So I think often going into the richly messy dimensions of our lives in some gritty detail just sitting with those things and letting there be space for that can be a resource for thinking about history as that way or the bible as that way and and noticing that those complications are not necessarily threatening but that we don't have to solve them and actually life becomes more livable when we're not trying to solve those messes simply 
again, I really like what you're saying here because, and you've used this term a couple of times, and I, I just want to make sure that my listeners are tracking with you on it. You've talked about denaturalizing authority and denat- denaturalizing what is taken for granted in, in a book. What do you mean when you use this term denaturalizing? Yeah, so um, the way that I do with material culture is just to say that something is not obvious, that there was a process in the making of, of that piece of material culture. Um, and, and the route that I'm going with that is, to, is, is psychological processes, right? There are psychological processes that produce our worlds. Our worlds are um, even those things that seem most obvious to us in, in the book. One of those things is this material culture. We can analyze and demonstrate how those things came to be as such. And that's really all that, you know, denaturalizing really means giving things a history, showing that it could have been some other way, or there's, a, there's some pieces of this that have been rendered invisible. And how do we bring those to the surface? And so that's one way of, of thinking about what denaturalization is. And in that answer, you have used another term, and I'm so glad that you did, because I, I want to set this into the conversation as well so that our listeners are fully tracking us through the rest of what we're talking about. You use this term material culture, and I, I wanted specifically to ask you about that because I think that there's a tension in a kind of cultural Christianity around the idea of materialism. And as I was thinking about this question, I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm an old guy, and so Madonna years ago sang a song. We're living in a material world and I'm a material girl. And she was talking about money and cultural pleasures and things like that. And so when some people hear this word materialism or material, they think about going after kind of profits and crassness and things like that. You don't mean that when you're talking about material culture. Help us understand what you mean by that term. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, material culture, when people studying the ancient world or, you know, any world really are thinking about it is these elements of the everyday. So ancient inscriptions on graves would be one. Houses and dining rooms, the Roman columns or burial practices. So these are the tangible and concrete elements of the everyday, the actual manuscripts on which these these texts are written and the scribal practices that produce them. Those have long been of interest to ancient historians and more recently come into more vogue with historians of early Christianity. There seems to be a return to this after so long. People have been more interested in, in the worlds created by language. Now there seems to be a turn into material culture or a more emphatic return to it. So that's part of what I wanted to, again, denaturalize or call into question and give a history to is to say material culture may seem obvious to us. It may seem like the simple ground of history, but even these fairly obvious blunt objects are not quite what they seem too. So it's about what we take to be real and what takes on the weight of what matters. Let me make sure that I'm tracking with what you're saying, because I think that there's sometimes a naivete that is on the other side of Christianity is not material or is not into materialism. And that is, if we can simply get back to ancient archaeological objects, they will completely confirm what the biblical text says. And as I'm hearing you answering, part of what I'm hearing is you want to look at the kind of family history of that kind of notion as well, that we can somehow get back to a simple, real past that simply confirms all of our present identities. Now, those are my words, not yours. When I say that, have I got it right? Or would you say it in a different way. No, I think that's right. In a certain way, the way scholars use the stuff of the ancient world, but say the splashy media articles about this new discovery that suddenly we have that confirms Jesus was here, died here, or whatever. Even though those are two different uses of material culture and you know archaeological stuff, there is still a sense that material things can deliver us something tangible about history, something we can go back to unequivocally. And I want to say that even though scholars do use this material much more responsibly and much with a lot more nuance, there's still a sense in which 
these material cultural elements represent something real, something that we can hold on to, something not ephemeral. <laughs> and so I wanted to return the ephemerality to these elements. Hey folks, before we go to break, I just want to say if you're enjoying this conversation, you may enjoy some other episodes that we have from earlier in the season. For example, episode number 2146, Reading Evangelicals with Daniel Silliman, or episode number 2142, where Bruce Chilton talks about the complex legacy of Herod the Great. We also have conversations with Rihanna Graybill talking about her excellent book, Texts After Terror, and Jennifer Butler on reclaiming scripture as a handbook for for resisting tyranny. And from last season, you might enjoy David Bentley Hart on The Merciful Hearted God. All of these are available at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Maya Katrositz. She's taught at Denison University, Amherst College, and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She is this year serving as a research associate at University of Waterloo Institute for Hellenistic Studies in Ontario, Canada. She's the author of the book Rethinking Early Christian Identity, Affect, Violence, and Belonging. And today we're talking about her recent book, The Lives of Objects, Material Culture, Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christianity. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Dr. Maya Katrositz. She's taught at Denison University, Amherst College, and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She is this year serving as a research associate at the University of Waterloo Institute for Hellenistic Studies in Ontario, Canada. She's the author of the book Rethinking Early Christian Identity, Affect, Violence, and Belonging. And today we're talking about her recent book, The Lives of Objects, Material Culture, Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christianity. Well, in the first segment, you made a a kind of offhand comment that I want to circle back to. You talked about the material world, the world of objects, and you contrasted it with worlds created by language. And when someone comes to your book, The Lives of Objects, they're going to find that you actually bring this up as a kind of conversation point at several key moments in the text. You're looking at the way in which a certain type of scholarship has used language to create worlds. But I want to make sure that our listeners are following along with that. So when we're talking about language kind of creating a world or worlds created by language, what are you meaning there? And I'm going to ask you a follow-on about how that contrasts with the kind of material genealogy that you're talking about. But let's start with what do we mean when we say worlds created by language? Yeah, it's a great question. So I don't mean to say that some people are creating worlds with language, but rather that all of our worlds are built through representation. So there is no primary presumption of the linguistic turn in theory. And that is that the idea that the, that the that worlds are built from discourses, from language, that there is no way to get to the hard stuff of life without some sort of mediation through words or representation. In the book, I'm not trying to contrast things with words, but rather to say the um, that the line between language and stuff is non-existent <laughs> um, or seriously eroded. That the contrast that we've taken between the quote-unquote linguistic turn in scholarship and then the material turn really needs to be rethought that words have material effects, that world, words and language are material things. 
And that language is a bodily experience and, and a cultural experience that demands a materialist address. And part of the way that you get at eroding or denaturalizing that break between language and things is you deploy and employ sort of the ideas of psychoanalysis. And for listeners that are unfamiliar with this, Sigmund Freud was one of the pioneers of this, but there are others that you mention as well that take Freud's thought farther. But when we look at an object, like I'm currently looking at a coffee cup here on my table, it's not simply an object to me. It, it involves in some way an encoding of my desire, and, in, and I have a story around this object. It's got a kind of fantastical quality to it that goes beyond its mere physical presence to me. And I love what you're saying because words also can do that for us. And You talk about a gesture or uh, someone looking at you even without speaking that can speak volumes at certain times. But I, as a way of getting into this, help me understand how psychoanalysis or the psychoanalytic can help us understand both objects and language in your way of looking at these things. Yeah. One of the primary consumptions of psychoanalysis is that everything that we see is only a small percentage of the total picture. So the unconscious is a way of saying, I mean, if we take the unconscious as metaphor and not simply as, as a function of the human person, but that there are unseen worlds behind every seen or said thing. So um, psychoanalysis was a big part that uh, theories of the unconscious were a big part of, of reading practices for scholars for the last 20 or 30 years in that the text wasn't just simply what was said, but that there were whole worlds and many contradictions and tensions and anxieties built into the said and that that part of it, the unsaid part of it was at least as important. So what I bring to material culture is the same idea. What I want to restore to material culture is the idea that there are whole unseen worlds of feelings, of fantasies, of attachments that are substantive, important parts of individual seemingly inert objects or some such, and that those change the way we think about those things. There's a portion of a work by Sigmund Freud. He wrote a, a work called Civilization and Its Discontents. And there's a point halfway through that where he starts talking about the relationship between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind and the those kinds of relationships. He likens to the conscious mind being like a Roman garrison occupying a hostile city. And that it's this little cordon of rationality that is maneuvering and keeping law and order in an otherwise kind of hostile place. And I was thinking about that reference from Freud as I was reading your book, The Lives of Objects, because in that particular sense, Freud is looking back and imagining a fantastical role for the Roman army. He's looking back at ancient culture and he's using it as a way of kind of trying to explain what he's trying to say in the modern world, he's looking at what was a real material colonial effect of Roman culture, and he's trying to analogize it to a way of explaining what's going on between the conscious and the unconscious mind. As he's doing this, I realized he was doing exactly what you're talking about in the lives of objects, the way that we're imagining the ancient world as a way of explaining our present world. Now, again, I'm making connections using my words, not yours, but I'm wondering what you think as I make these connections. Oh, it's beautiful and great and has so many links to the themes in this book, including discipline and law. So I wish I had remembered that when I was writing this book. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fantasies about Romans and the Roman Empire and Christians, I mean, the fantasies about the ancient world are just so rich and, and troubling and toxic and there's so much going on and we don't even realize that we're fantasizing when we're doing it we don't even realize that these pictures of the ancient world are animating the present in a lot of ways we, we've we've made those things those analogies to be obvious in a lot of ways but yeah i mean the Freud in the in the introduction to the book, I talk about Freud thinking of Rome as, as the ruins of Rome as an analogy for for the unconscious, and I think that's just itself full. You know, and he thinks that that nothing gets lost in that. I mean, which is crazy. <laughs> that's that's history is lost. So much history is lost to us. Um, that's part of the connective tissue of this book. 
and part of what generated some of these uh, associations and when readers make their own associations linked to the book is probably the most satisfying part of being a writer. Well, and you've a couple want to make listeners. We imagine that it gives us a glimpse of the past that is concrete. When we think about ancient Rome and imagine that the stories that we have heard from historians are giving us a concrete piece of the past, we are fantasizing at that moment about a past history that may or may not map onto actual events, spaces, and objects. But that fantasy, if I'm hearing you correctly, has a certain reality in and of itself. It has effects in our world. You know, Freud is an example, but we can also think about those that pull their kids out of public schools because they want to give their children a classical education, imagining that somehow there's, I mean, these have concrete effects in the real world. Now, as I'm making those connections, am I understanding the kind of pain Payoff for part of what you hope the lives of objects will do for readers, or am I missing something that you would say in a different way? No, that's that's exactly right. One of the things I want to just note and clarify for readers and listeners is that I don't read fantasy as the opposite of reality. So there's fantasy as in daydreaming. But there's also fantasy in the work of Melanie Klein, for instance, the psychoanalytic theorist Melanie Klein. She suggests fantasy is part of the construction of our reality, that fantasizing is something that we do all the time in order to live in the world. Because the world is full of contradictions. The world is full of information we can assimilate and organize into a picture. And so our lives are just this constant negotiation of fantasy and elements that don't fit into our fantasies. And that's fantasy revision. And so the object of this book or the the goal of this book is not to say we're all just fantasizing all the time only and that we have to get real. (laughs) Even while I know, even while I value the real as something we need to reckon with. And that's something that we can occasionally even access, but not simply or easily and nothing we can stay on some sort of easygoing terms with. So the idea is that we're always, that we want to make our fantasies in as much as we can and always in relationship to other people. That's the really important part is that we need to be able to see our fantasies as fantasies sometimes. And to be able to assimilate those things that interrupt our fantasies and do that in a way that's not violent, that accounts for things that are outside of our fantasies. And I I feel a little bit of caution about saying not violent because I'm not trying to create this sort of utopian idea that we can never, we can find some sort of magical moment where we're not ever doing violence. But the idea is this ongoing awakeness things that snap us out of our fantasies for a moment. We have this all the time. We have this when we have an argument with our partners. We have this when our, our kids start to talk back to us. We have this when we, you know, trip on something, you know, and there's all, or, or when we have a dream about something, you know, so it's, it's not, you know, there's these moments when we're interrupted from our idea of reality for, for any myriad reasons. But those moments are opportunities for us to revise our fantasies, to be, yeah, maybe less violent until we encounter the next thing. Yeah. And so reality testing is, is what I'm proposing. that We take up the psychoanalytic concept of reality testing with each other in order to revise our fantasies and see them as such. Let me take a quick moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Maya Katrositz. She's taught at Denison University, Amherst College, and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She's this year serving as a research associate at the University of Waterloo Institute for Hellenistic Studies in Ontario, Canada. She's the author of Rethinking Early Christian Identity, Affect, Violence, and Belonging. And today we're talking about her recent book, The Lives of Objects, Material Culture, Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christianity. There's so much that I want to ask you about, and there's so many directions that I want to go. So part of what I'm feeling pulled in is this, what you're saying about this kind of 
reality testing, that we're not necessarily going to get to something real and concrete, but we may get to a way of interacting with others that has less violence in it, that has less exploitation in it. And this is not some kind of utopian ideal that we're trying to get to, but instead it's a way of kind of maneuvering in the world so that we're honoring ourselves and honoring others more fully in our interactions. And to me, that sounds in some ways very much like a kind of Christian ideal. I also look at the experience of public Christianity over the last, I don't know, three decades or my lifetime or the entirety of its existence, and I see that there's a tension here. And I'm aware that you wrote this book, The Lives of Objects, starting around 2016 and in and around the Trump administration. There was a real push in writing this book to try and speak to and speak with a kind of nationalized Christianity that was erupting at that particular moment. You mentioned Charlottesville particularly, but there's others, other examples of this as well. And so I'm wondering about this tension. You're not trying to create a utopian vision here. You're trying to give scholars a different way of talking, but you also don't want to overplay that hand, it seems, because you say there's only so much that scholars can do. So I'm wondering about some of those tensions, particularly that come up toward the end of your book, The Lives of Objects, between kind of public theology and public scholarship and just trying to get at these better relationships. Yeah, you're such an attentive reader of this book, and I just I feel so grateful for that. Yeah, so these are the conundrums, right? On the one hand, as a scholar of early Christianity, I feel like I can't not interact so, I mean, I don't even want to not interact. Sometimes sometimes I want to just crawl in my shell and forget that the world is what it is, but not for very long because I'm too upset. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not offering a different kind of Christianity for us to adopt and take up as a new kind of flag. My way of not doing that is to say, this is not even really Christianity. What we're talking about is not some origin for what we have now. So interrupting the the desire to make the first through third or fourth centuries, you know, a kind of start point for who we are now, whoever that we is imagined to be. So there's that. But as a picture of the literature belonging to what is now Christianity or what becomes Christianity, I am definitely reading it anti-triumphally. And that feels like the intervention, you know, without saying this is our stuff and this is who, quote unquote, we were or something. Say These are other people. (laughs) Just this is other stuff going on there. But these texts also need to be read in a way that foregrounds their collective, you know, I've used the language of collective trauma sometimes, diaspora losses or imperial ruination. I try not to get too attached to particularized terms or analytics just because I tend, I think that they, we tend to get attached to them and then lose a lot of the grittiness. So I like to move around and below the grid of those terms a little bit, but just to when when picking up on the felt effects of empire and colonization, reading that way, reading as Vincent Wimbush has as long recommended, reading darkly it for collective moments of disenfranchisement, marginalization, you know, when we read that way, it becomes harder to transport those texts into any sort of nationalist program. I don't want to say impossible. I mean, you can do anything. You can turn anything around as we've learned, right? <laughs> so I want to keep us on unstable ground and always be watching out for the effects of different kinds of readings. But, you know, my picture of the first to third century is really dark. <laughs> and, and I want it to be. I want to pay attention to just kind of the broken uneasiness of all that. And that actually does feel like it resonates a lot with the world now. I mean, Maybe always, maybe the world, you know, <laughs> we don't think the first through third centuries and now are even very unique times. So. <laughs> so if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Maya Katrositz. She's taught at Denison University and Amherst College and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. 
She's this year serving as research associate at the University of Waterloo Institute for Hellenistic Studies in Ontario, Canada. She's the author of the book Rethinking Early Christian Identity, Affect, Violence, and Belonging. And today we're talking about her recent book, The Lives of Objects, Material, Culture, Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christianity. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Maya Katrositz. She's taught at Denison University, Amherst College, and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. This year, she's serving as a research associate at the University of Waterloo Institute for Hellenistic Studies in Ontario, Canada. She's the author of the book, Rethinking Early Christian Identity, Affect, Violence, and Belonging. And today, we're talking about her recent book, The Lives of Objects, Material Culture, Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christianity. Well, at the end of our last segment, you were starting to say that when you look back at those first three centuries of Christianity, from the death of Jesus up to about the fourth century, you really look at that as a kind of dark history, and that you don't imagine that we get a clear picture of the formation of Christian identity in those centuries. I, I realize I'm paraphrasing, and I may be paraphrasing inaccurately, so I'd ask if you would be willing to say a little bit more about that, because I think some of of my listeners will say, I look at the book of Acts and I see the church, or some who have some training in religious studies say, I can read Tertullian, or I can read some of the early church fathers and the accounts of the martyrs, and I can get what the church was really like. What's the problem with approaching those first centuries with that kind of lens? So it treats the texts themselves as records of what happened. And so that's problem number one. It suggests, it maps a term that's actually quite limited in the New Testament onto the entire New Testament and to an, an entire history. So the word Christian is actually only used three times in the entire New Testament. It's used twice in the book of Acts. And I and at great length in my earlier book, more closely, I, I do this work, is put those two uses in the book of Acts and, and in first period, the other use of it, into perspective within the narrative and a rereading of the narrative of the book of Acts and say, these are not terms necessarily that should be the filter through which we read all this material. And I notice that the term Christian arises in a particular moment in time under very particular circumstances in a lot of these texts that it's treated largely as a, a slander. I'm not the only person who has said this. Other people have said this too. And, and occurs largely in legal law and justice contexts of which martyrdom texts are, these are also fantasies about legal context as well. So it's not surprising that the term Christian and, and declaration of identity, I am a Christian, occurs with respect to those scenes. So I want to talk about why the, the term arises in those scenes and what it means that the term Christian generally arises in those kinds of scenes and use that as a way to think about why the term takes off and, and, and not because everybody's calling themselves that, but rather that it's the term with ambiguous or zero content that people feel driven to attach some content to. And so when we read Tertullian, instead of assuming that there's a Christian population, instead of assuming that's who he's speaking to, that there's a Christian community, or imagining that he's writing about things he has seen, I mean, it's clear Tertullian's just reading other texts. that he's and so... These are not separate. We can't think of um, Tertullian and Acts and this correspondence between Denver Trejan and Governor Pliny as separate attestations of something, but rather Tertullian is building on this to come up with his own, you know, highly fanciful account. Once we untangle those pieces, or rather we see those pieces as linked to each other and not as simply the filter through which everything should be seen, we come to a different account of how Christian identity becomes thinkable and possible, and it's much later than we imagine. Let me see if I've understood 
the move that you just made. So when we look, for example, at a population like the same-sex attracted population, homosexual populations in European and American contexts, we see the word queer being used first as a, a slight or an insult, and then it is adopted by the community as an identifier. If we look back to 1649-1650, the St. George's Hill area, the rise of the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers, a person is being brought before a magistrate, and the magistrate says, I see you quaking before me, and the person says, I don't quake before you, I quake before the Lord. And this word Quaker gets used first as a kind of insult and then gets brought in, and they begin referring to themselves as Quakers. So what I'm hearing you saying is that in a similar fashion, Christian was a very ambiguous term in these first centuries, and it was oftentimes being used as an insult, and eventually different populations began to fill it with an with a content of identification that was positive. But we can't necessarily look at these early texts and see it, per, even in the New Testament, as being something that we always can read a positive content into. Now, these are all my words, not yours. Have I missed anything? Would you say it in a different way? Yeah, no, I would say that's, that's basically right. I'm a little bit wary of the population takes it on after it being a slander in that it naturalizes the idea of a population. So what I want to say is, yes, slanders get reclaimed, but um, slanders, what we think of as outsider terms, also produce populations. They do racializing work, essentially. So what I want us to pay attention to is less identity. And this is the piece that I am offering more to, to scholars as um, let's think less about identity and more about populations, how populations are born, made, reproduced. And that changes the game a little bit. So then we don't have a, a group waiting to be named or an already obvious population just waiting to be named by something. We have a name that takes on different kinds of uses, puts people together who may not have ever thought of themselves together and does other kinds of social work. So yeah, I think that's really close. And some of the pushback that I got in that for my other book was what is going on then? Uh, don't you think you're taking this a little too far? <laughs> and so I wanted to offer something really concrete, not just a history of the term itself and its maybe first context and, and how it takes flight, but also to say what else is going on, what else this could be. And I basically say it's Judean diaspora culture. Diaspora is a term that I define pretty closely in, in the, both of the books, but thinking about this literature is not new, exceptional theological work at all, <laughs> but incidentally, and with time coming to be distinct in a particular way. And that's what I offer as a read instead of early Christian uh, for the first and second century, particularly. Your answer has helped me to understand more fully a passage that when I first read it was a little unclear to me. You make a point and you say, oftentimes the, those who have power in the ancient world will look at certain populations and will declare them to be kind of delinquent populations. And you say, I'm not saying that they were actually delinquents. I'm saying that they were declared to be delinquents and that that declaration created a sense of identity that wasn't naturally there before. Now, as I make that connection and as that becomes clear to me, I want to make sure, first of all, have I read that passage more correctly now? And as I'm saying it back to you, am I understanding the mechanism that you're talking about? It's not that a group of delinquents were called Christians and that we can understand naturally that they were delinquents. It's that a powerful entity like the Roman Empire declared certain populations who may not have had any identification with each other as a kind of delinquent population, and that created for them a sense of, of identity. Have I got the mechanism right? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that people have imagined about early Christians, largely, I would say, progressive Christians um, and, and scholars have imagined Christians as super subversive, countercultural, <laughs> you know, so saying, well, the Roman Empire hated them and called them the slander. And so that names something right about their behavior or practices feels really problematic to me, in part because we know 
in our contemporary world, the populations are called to be delinquent all the time just by virtue of the utility for incarceration or racialization. We see this at work all the time, the way governments and and powers create populations and create a sense of criminality, attribute criminality to people for whom it makes no sense otherwise. Um, it's just simply the utility of it. So I wanted to be really nuanced in the way that I applied that idea um, to the first and second century. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Maya Katrositz. She's taught at Denison University, Amherst College, and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She's this year serving as a research associate at the University of Waterloo Institute for Hellenistic Studies in Ontario, Canada. She's the author of the book, Rethinking Early Christian Identity, Affect, Violence, and Belonging. And today we're talking about her recent book, The Lives of Objects, Material Culture, Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christianity. Well, you mentioned that there was some pushback to this characterization of the dark history of the first three centuries of Christian identity development. The pushback was there against your book, Rethinking Early Christian Identity. And there's a a passage in your book, The Lives of Objects, where you say, I just want to acknowledge that there was this pushback, and I'm going to, and I think I'm remembering what you say, you say, I'm going to stubbornly continue in this and push these ideas more fully. And it strikes me that towards the end of the book, you and at the beginning of the book as well, you say, I'm not trying to make a comprehensive case here. I'm trying to create enough kind of facts on the ground, enough kind of uh, provocations and evidentiary kind of displays that you'll start thinking about this slightly differently. And so I'm wondering, who do you think is the audience for your book? Who are you talking to with the lives of objects? It's a great question. When I imagined different people with every chapter, because you write each chapter sort of piecemeal. I mean, in general, I wrote it for scholars. Scholars, I was hoping to first address conundrums in the study of early Christianity and and late antiquity and classics, um, kind of as an adjacent or overlapping field. And Jewish studies, of course, as I read at the beginning of of this, or actually, it didn't really balloon out. It it was always uncomfortable in relationship to all of those things. So if I think about this book as a whole, I think it starts with some micro arguments within the the specialized field of early Christian studies and writes them in a way that those arguments become meaningful and useful for people across ancient history, classics, Jewish studies, early Christian studies, of course, but also the humanities because of the way the material turn is overtaken. So much of humanities um, theorizing these days, you know, anthropology. So I'm, it has been, I know it has been so far useful to people in, in a lot of the fields of the humanities. I hope that I wrote enough pieces of it in a way that were introductory, that they could speak to an audience that has enough facility with the history of of Christianity to be able to get some hooks in it as well. Um, My dad wrote both of my books, and he is not a scholar in any formal way, and only knows a little bit of what I do from from those books, and he thought this was much more readable than my first one. (laughs) So he felt like he could understand more of it, so I'm hoping it is accessible enough for people to get some sense of what the most current conversations are in in scholarship on early Christianity. Well, that that makes me think as well, after the formal part of the book is done in the acknowledgments, part of what you say there is that given the time frame in which you wrote this book, The Lives of Objects, there was a time where it was difficult to imagine yourself anecdotally in this book, that you like to write in a very kind of personal style, but that was at certain points difficult for you in the composition of this. So in addition to asking you how you've imagined the audiences for this book, I'm really interested in how you've thought about yourself, how you were constructing the narrative of yourself while you were writing this book? Who was the Maya Katrositz that was writing this book in the process of creating it? Gosh, what a great and difficult question. I mean, part of this is about of how I come to writing and writing about early Christianity. And that is that I sort of fell into this field accidentally that I took some classes at Union Theological Seminary where I got my PhD 
just because I was interested in, in early Christian stuff and I didn't have any plot or plan in mind. I fancied myself a writer and, and not necessarily one who had a, a clear project about what to write, just that I loved writing and it was how I found my way through the world. And so this stuff gave me content. So I think always when I'm writing about history, and, and this is probably true for a lot of us to one degree or another, maybe all of us, I don't know, but we find our way through material because of the specificity of our experiences and what we know or don't know or hope to know. So sometimes I've done that really explicitly in my work. In some of these chapters, it's very explicit how I knit into so text that I'm exploring or the, the objects I'm exploring. But some of that was more oblique with this book. Like sometimes I was, I was writing about belly troubles in the ancient world and I was having like terrible stomach aches for years that I couldn't resolve. And I just, there was so much I couldn't write about in explicit terms. And I don't know why that was this time around. Maybe I was just feeling raw. Maybe I didn't, I don't know. And I think that's okay. You know, <laughs> I don't think there's anything particularly good or bad about explicitly writing about yourself. But yeah, who is the Maya Katrosis in this, in this book? I don't really know. I'm probably the worst person to judge that. But whenever you encounter something you wrote long ago, or it means it wasn't long, but I started writing and a lot has happened since then. You always encounter yourself this as kind of a, an alien production. So it feels a little bit like an alien production. Um, I always feel like speaking about the book is being accountable to something that it's, that's sort of you and also much more different than you. So I don't know who that is, but when writing what I'm writing now, all the things that I'm writing now, I also am writing to find out who I am right now. <laughs> writing to find out what did, what does she think? You know, one of my favorite things about writing is I always like to write until I feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like something doesn't feel done to me unless I so oh, is that really what I think? <laughs> Ooh, what follows from that? So I write to discover what I think at the furthest edges of what's possible. And this book, I think, to the extent that it succeeds, it succeeds well in that because I didn't know that what came out of that was possible when I started writing it. <laughs> well, Maya Katrositz, I have to say, you have just described discovering new things in your book, The Lives of Objects. It was revelatory to me in the things that I discovered while reading it. As I said at the top of the show, I plan to go back and read it again just because I know that the first time that I went through, there's there are things that I missed. I hope that all of my listeners will pick up this book because it is very readable, even though it deals with theory, it deals with technical questions. It does so in a very approachable way, in a very concrete way. I'm so glad that you took the time to write the book, and I'm so especially glad that you took the time to talk with us about it today. I hope that you keep writing books and please keep coming back and talking to us about it because we've only scratched the surface of the ideas here and they are so worth engaging with. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much and will do on all counts. We've been speaking today with Dr. Maya Katrositz. She's taught at Denison University, Amherst College, and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She's this year serving as a research associate at the University of Waterloo Institute for Hellenistic Studies in Ontario, Canada. She is the author of Rethinking Early Christian Identity, Affect, Violence, and Belonging. And today we've been talking about her recent book, The Lives of Objects, Material Culture, Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christianity. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. 
I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.